I'll be reading this morning from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, this passage is, uh, is quite easy to preach poorly and, and lopsidedly. And um, I feel as though I'm, I'm like carrying this precious serum uh, that requires incredible skill and caution to not spill it. Um, this is a dark passage on the society of men and women apart from God. And um, but we need to hear this. I just want to preach it with grace and truth uh, together. Uh, I think it's going to be instructive for us, I trust, and uh, help us to understand the gospel in greater measure. So let me remind you of the context we're at. Remember now, Paul um, is, we're in that section where Paul's trying to remind us of the greatness of the gospel, why we need this gospel. And so from chapter 118 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to lay out plenty of reasons why we ought to be thankful and grateful for what he has done for us in God. He's, he's trying to help us appreciate what we become all too familiar with, that this God-man has come to deliver us from what we've just read. And it all starts out in 118, you know, where he begins to tell us that the glory of God has been demonstrated through creation. It's clear for all to see, and yet we've rejected him. Uh, we have rejected him, we've suppressed his truth, we've been ungrateful to his kindness, we have inverted his creation, we've exchanged him, we've replaced him with gods of our own making. And that's not done without effect. You know, we, we, we learned last week why God is angry. He's angry at our rejection of his glory. And this week we're going to see how God expresses his anger, how God's wrath is revealed. So I want to do this in two parts. I want to first kind of explain the wrath of God. You know, what is the wrath of God explained? 
You know, we're going to see that in 24 and 25. And then we're going to look at uh, how is God's wrath revealed? How can we discern it? How can we see it? And, and that will be really through 24 all the way through the end. So first, just let me explain uh, how God's wrath is, what it is. Because you kind of see it in that language, uh, God gave them over. Uh, that's repeated three times. God gave them over. This is, this is how God's wrath is going to ultimately be manifest. Now notice, though, that there is that therefore. That's a grammatical clue to you. Whenever you see the word therefore, you always know that there's that, that's a connective tissue between two passages of Scripture. And so it's pulling from last week into this week, and that's why there may be some redundancy. Redundancy is good for the sake of learning. So you see, therefore, God gave them over. Now, Paul's explaining to us you know, we, we think of the wrath of God as being manifest with thunder and lightning and hail and these cataclysmic experiences. It's all going to happen on the end day. Well, I don't doubt that that will happen on the end day. I don't know if all the environmental stuff will be there, but it'll happen on the end day. But there's a present day application of God's wrath. Remember how we saw last week how the wrath of God is revealed? It's being revealed. In the present day, the wrath of God is being revealed. How so? God gives them over. God gives us over. So what's that mean? Well, it simply means this, that God abandons his creation to walk out all their sinful desires that they want to do. That God removes the restraints so that we can pursue headlong into the destructive paths that we have adored. There's kind of a judicial hardening, this hardening to sin so that we just want more and more of it. He removes the remedial judgment. You know, those, you know, sometimes those soft measures of judgment by God act in a preventative way. He removes the remedial judgment so that we can do what we want to do. In fact, I quoted Os Guinness last week. He is a contemporary um, cultural critic and scholar, and he wrote a book called Fool's Talk, The Art of Christian Persuasion. And he writes these words, he says, God's own characteristic response to disobedience and unbelief is a turning of the tables. When humans abuse and suppress and exploit the truth, God becomes the fierce unmasker of lies, tears down idols, and debunks myths. God does this by giving men and women over to these very things. Sin becomes the punishment for sin. So he punishes us by giving us way to continue to sin. And you see this clearly in Psalm 81. This isn't, this isn't outside the scriptures. The psalmist writes, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to, the stubborn, to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. So when God gives them over, he gives society over to itself. Now, some of you may say, is this really fair of God? Is this moral of God to abandon us? Oh, we have not, have we, haven't we abandoned him? I mean, haven't we turned and, and rejected him? R remember this, that the wrath of God is an expression of his love. Right? Lo wrath is a function of proper love. So if you have someone that you love dearly, and they are suffering injustice, even though they have created their own mess, you still hate what is happening to them because you love them. 
Even if a person that you love is subjecting themselves to harm, to, to be indifferent to that would be unloving. So God giving over is actually, there's a lining of grace in that. Uh, let me, when um, Katie, our firstborn, was young, very young, uh, she loved to grab the lights on the Christmas tree. And back in the day, before LED lights came out, we had a better light. And it was those big bulbs that you had plastered all over your tree. And they could get quite hot. And uh, so she would keep wanting to play with it and grab it. And I'd say no. I'd put her hand out. No. I'd increase the volume of my voice. No. And I could not dissuade her. So finally, I, I thought, I'm just going to build a fence. So I went out and bought a bunch of two-by-fours and built this fence to kind of fence in the Christmas tree. Of course, uh, being the diligent young girl that she was, she climbed over, threw around, and, and finally, you know what I just said? Took the fence down. Said, have at it. I got out of her way. Gave her what she wanted. She went up, and she grabbed that light bulb, and she looked at me, and she was smiling, and I was just counting. I was just counting. One, <laughs> two, and she's holding on to it, and she's getting what she wants. And I think she made it to maybe five or six. And then, you know, it was burning her hand, and she finally let it go. She never went to the tree again. She, she, it, it was just, it instructed her well. You, you know, one Swiss theologian says it this way. He says, when man has reached a certain degree of corruption, he can only be cured by the very excess of his own corruption. So, so there's a mercy there, even in God giving over, that we get filled up with our own filth to the point that it wakes us up. So, how is God's wrath? It's, it's expressed through giving over. But look in 25, because he explains why he does it. He doesn't want us confused. He says this, he says, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And notice how he says, who is blessed forever. In other words, Paul's saying, how foolish we are. He is the blessed creator, and we're going for the creation. It, it, this is what the Bible calls idolatry, and I touched on this last week. The idolatry is just the exchanging of something of glorious value for something of very temporal, low value. This is the nature of idolatry. It's exchanging the truth of God, all of his glory, how we ought to live for his glory, and we exchange it for a lie, a distortion of God. So it's like walking into the it's like walking into a circus where they have that room of circus mirrors and you know your bodies are all twisted contorted and distorted and that's what we do to life when we begin to exchange God to begin living life for ourselves and living life as if we begin to define all the rules and regulations about life and we live as if God doesn't exist our lives become like those circus mirrors, twist it and distort it. And that's why idolatry always leads to, it always leads to immorality. The bad belief, it always leads to bad behavior. They go hand in hand. So let me just stop here for a minute, you know, because this would indicate that we're all idolaters. Uh, you know, the opposite of belief in God is not unbelief. It's belief in lesser gods. In other words, there's, we all have faith. 
even if you're here today and you're hard fixed in your agnosticism, you have a faith. I mean, you have a faith in yourself or you have a faith in your ideology or some movement or a government or you have faith in other people. You have, everybody has faith. Why? We're all human beings. We all worship something. We all have to live with an order to life. We all have priorities here. And, and whatever we prioritize, that becomes the, the target of most meaning and purpose to us. And we begin to pursue that. Now, for you, it may be money. Money provides security for many. Uh, maybe for you, it's intellectualism. That is a source of power. Perhaps for you, it may be, it may be work. You know, idolatry of work because it produces some sense of well-being. Or it's sex. I want just some form of transcendent pleasure. Uh, it, it can be any sort of thing or person. But we're all worshipers. And, and, and Martin Luther said it this way, that anything that your heart that your heart clings to and it relies on. That's your God. The problem with this, of course, is that idolatry can never satisfy. And that's why we need more and we need more and we need more. Because the money, there's never enough. Sex, there's never enough. Control, there's never enough. Idolatry just begs you to just work your way like a corkscrew deep into the ground. You can never be satisfied with it. And in this is the wrath of God. That's the wrath of God. J.I. Packer is a contemporary theologian. He writes these words. He says, To those with eyes to see, tokens of the active wrath of God appear. He says, Everywhere the Christian observes a pattern of degeneration, constantly working itself out, from the knowledge of God to worship of that which is not God, from, adultery, uh, from idolatry to immorality, or even stronger sorts, so that each generation grows a fresh crop of ungodliness. In this decline, we are to recognize the present action of divine wrath in a process of judicial hardening and withdrawal of restraint, whereby humans are given up to their corrupt preferences and so to come and practice more and more the lusts of their sinful hearts. That is how he explains the wrath of God, a giving over. So how do you understand the wrath of God? It, it isn't with thunderclap and, and visual power, but it's with a giving over to our own devices. But where do we see this? How, how does it appear to you? Well, th this is the second half of the sermon. So the wrath of God has been explained to you, but giving over. So the second part of this is that the wrath of God is revealed through three different degenerating dimensions. Uh, three, I'm going to give them to you. There's one, it's expressed through sexual impurity. It is expressed through a debased mind or a mental dimension. And then there's a final, and there's a, a, an ultimate dimension that is revealed in death. So those are the three dimensions that we see whereby our, our adult or uh, idolatry is expressed. This is how God's wrath is revealed. This is the way it appears on the street. The first you see in sexual uh, impurity, notice with me in, um, in 24, he says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, I see these as synonymous. In other words, he's saying that when you turn your back on God, then, then you're moving towards sexual impurity. 
You know, the question may come in your mind, why does he pick on sex? You know, is, are Christians just always down on sex and we don't enjoy sex and we're always using that as kind of the target for, you know, the aiming of what's wrong in culture? No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Uh, sexual impurity, I think, is chosen by Paul because the sexual intimacy between a man and a woman is the highest form of transparency and love that two people can express. And that becomes a picture of the very covenant that Christ has with the church, that God has with his people. And so our marital purity is to be a reflection to the world of that which God wants to have with us. And so when you exchange the truth of God for a lie, when you distort how God has created his world, that that is the key area that is distorted, and it distorts the very glory of God. So I think that's why he speaks about sexual impurity. But there's more than that. You notice he goes on in 26 and 27, and he gives us an example of this impurity. And if you look with me at this passage, he says, for this reason, so he repeats himself, he says this, um, that for God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So he chooses homosexuality as illustrative, not evaluative, of the nature of sexual impurity. Let me say that again. He's choosing homosexuality as an illustration, not because it's a worse sin than, than adultery or other forms of sexual impurity. He chooses it because it's most illustrative. He's not grading sins here. He's not grading sexual sins. He's just saying that you know that the wrath of God has come upon a culture when you begin to distort the very sexual differentiation that God has created us with. So he uses, he uses homosexuality because it's the most obvious distortion of what we have done with his gift of sexuality. So God has created us in a complementarian fashion in our own physical bodies. And the greatest distortion of that, the greatest visual distortion, is a woman pursuing a woman or a man producing, or, or pursuing a man. That there, is that there is that sexual differentiation that God has so designed, and none of us can change that. And that is displayed, the distortion is displayed in homosexuality. Now, as I said, homosexuality is not worse than adultery. Adultery would just be more of a natural evil. It's not a better one. It's more natural to how our design has been made by God. Now, let me try to answer some questions because this is such a, a challenging topic. Am I saying that homosexuality is a worse sin? No, I'm not. I'm not at all. In fact, I would caution you against an overfocus on homosexuality as greater than other sexual sins. It just is more illustrative, it's more obvious, but it's not of a greater sin. So we, we don't see it. We don't 
use some gradation method over sexual sins. They're all being implied here in the lust of the hearts, impurity, and in doing dishonorable things with our body. So no, I don't think it's the worst sin. Am I saying that AIDS is a direct result of God's judgment on homosexuality? No, I'm not saying that either. In fact, I think it's a very hazardous thing to try to draw some one-to-one relationship with a specific sin and a specific disease. If you want to do that, then what is barrenness over? What sin caused that? Or, or cancer? Uh, should, you, you know, when you begin to try to attach specific sins with specific diseases or problems in life, I, I think you ask for a great, great problem. I don't think that's the issue. Now, saying that, I do believe that there is a sowing and a reaping principle. I do believe that. I believe that if a culture embraces prostitution and sexual promiscuity, that sexually transmitted diseases will increase, that crime will increase, that marital dysfunction will increase. Absolutely. I do see there to be a comparison. I just don't do the one-to-one relationship. Am I saying that homosexuality is the same thing as same-sex attraction? No, I'm not saying that either. In in fact, I would argue that, that we make a terrible mistake when we equate a person who struggles with the same sex attraction with homosexuality, or even the person who is born with a specific gender, let's say male, and yet they have strongly feminine tendencies, that the way their minds work are more what would be considered of a feminine nature. I don't, I don't think either of those are sins. I don't think he's speaking about that. The old idea of an effeminate man being an abomination, I, I think that's a poor translation. He's not speaking about that. You know, in, in, as Von Roberts, he wrote a book called Transgender. It's a great little book. It's a great introduction to the whole debate. Very balanced, very merciful, very kind, very truthful. Um, he said there's a huge difference between men and women, but there's a huge difference between women and women. There's a huge difference between men and men. Uh, There are great differences, and uh, providentially, I'm preparing the sermon this week, and you can tell that I would be under some serious consternation over how to do this, knowing that you're probably going to offend everybody at one point in this sermon. Uh, But I get this phone call from a person, and uh, they wanted to know how I was going to treat this text in terms of gender. And they went on to explain uh, that, that this person has a struggle, a deep, uh, struggle with identity over uh, because their their mind is wired in an opposite direction than their body has been created, and um, it was very enlightening, very helpful. I, I would say it was providential. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to that. I really am. I mean, there is a great uh, cognitive dissonance when your mind is here and your body is here, and I think there needs to be. Uh, greater mercy and greater understanding shown to the souls that struggle with that. I'd still call for purity. I'd still call for walking out godliness right. But that is a struggle that if you don't have, you need to think about it. Because it would be a struggle at the core of your own identity. And that's pretty, that's pretty near and dear uh, to ground zero of your own life. I think Paul's not speaking about them. I think Paul's speaking about those 
who may have that struggle, but they give way to it. And they redefine themselves in opposition to how God himself has created them. And they give way to it, and they now make that their gender. Remember this. You know, while you can apply to the university and have 32 genders to choose from, there's two types, male and female. Scientifically, that, that's it. You know, it, there's the male and there's the female. Now, I don't doubt that there's all kinds of gender confusion in terms of who am I. I understand that. Just gave word to it. But fundamentally, there are two types of human beings. He created them male and he created them female. I think Paul's speaking about those who have given way and they now have adopted a new gender and lived into that. I think that's the, those who he is going after. One last question. You may look at a text like this and say, well, God's not really condemning those who feel they've been born that way. In other words, if you're born that way, then you're walking within the nature that you've been given by God. In fact, uh, many uh, scholars who affirm, practice, or even affirm or teach homosexuality, they agree with my translation right now. They just think it applies to the heterosexual who moves across the fence to homosexuality. In other words, if, if the homosexual has been born that way and he has that nature, then he's not doing things contrary to nature. In fact, they're similar to his nature. I would just say to you, I don't think the text supports that. I mean, you're kind of reading it. We call that eisegesis. You know, you're kind of reading into a text. Uh, but but I, would, I would give this argument that, that you notice when he speaks about this, women exchange natural relations and, and, and men likewise gave up natural relations. What he's speaking about is creation. You see all the creational language. Uh, the Greek words used are not men and women, but male and female, drawing our minds back to Genesis 2. You see the language of birds and, and animals and creeping things. That's from Genesis 1.31. You see the word creator used in there. You see all this creational language because when Paul's talking about they gave up natural relations, it's nature as according to how God designed it, not how I feel my orientation is. It's a huge difference there. And, and by the way, for those who would say, yeah, but what Paul's going after really is the man-boy relationship that was often common within Roman culture. But you don't see that because Paul's speaking about women too. And others may say, well, he's really speaking about the slave master, the master-slave, the exploitation. Uh, that, that He's really condemning homosexuality where masters are, are putting themselves upon their slaves. But you don't see that because in the text he says men were burning with passion for one another. So there's that bilateral relationship. So you see how Paul's narrowing his target to make sure that you understand his point. So one evidence of God's wrath on a culture is the embracing and walking out of sexual impurity as illustrated but not solely defined by homosexuality. And I would just caution you, if you're a Christian here, I would caution you to not overfocus on homosexuality as the nature of wrath. You know, I've heard too many preachers say that God is going to judge America for their homosexuality. They've missed the whole point. He judged us because of our idolatry. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It's only manifested in this among other ways. We're going to talk about other non-sexual ways that the wrath of God is demonstrated on a culture. And not just America, it's on the world. 
The world is under the wrath of God. That's the point. So go with me to the next one. We looked at the bodily dimension. Look at the mental dimension here. He says in 28, and listen to these words. When Kimmy was reading them, I was just being hit with this list of 21 vices. He says in, in 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It literally, in Greek, uh, they didn't see fit to acknowledge him, and so he gave them an unfit mind. In other words, you see the wrath of God as displayed through a society that is coming unhinged. And each society, I don't see our society as fundamentally worse than some society, you know, the 17% church attendance rate in 1776 in this country. So I don't see this society as uniquely horrible in compared to, to other societies. In each society, you see this structural unhinging in terms of our, of our, of our social relationships, of our family relationships. He speaks about the nature of greed or our financial you know, he speaks about the nature of our family breakdown and disobedient children, about the, the degeneration of our character. We've become inventors of evil. This is totally non-sexual here. So if you're here and you're thinking, well, that's not for me. This text isn't for me because I've been moral and I've been pure and all that. And, and I, I applaud all that. This muds on everybody. Muds on everyone. I mean, who here doesn't find themselves in part of this list in some measure? Maybe not as much as another, but this list hits all of us. It shows the wrath of God upon a society where we don't think the thoughts of God. We don't pursue the thoughts of God. I mean, I mean it's, it's very... In, there's this major condemnation upon... He, now, he's not just picking on us individually. Paul's simply saying this. This is the evidence that the society is under the wrath of God. Remember now, just to keep oxygen coming to you, he's reminding you why you need the gospel. He's reminding why the gospel is needed in every culture, in every generation. Because this is the evidence of the wrath of God. This is not bringing the wrath. It's the idolatry. It's the exchanging of God. It's us not wanting to live for his glory. And, and what happens is, when God steps out of the way, we go to hell in a handbag. That's what it is. We just go apart. We fracture and break apart. And you see it in all these different 21 vices that, was, that were read for us. Was read for us. Now look at the final dimension. The final dimension is in 32, because it really speaks to the nature of death. He says this, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I think Paul's finally saying, at the bottom of the barrel, this is where you're going to be. This is where, apart from God, this is where you're going to be. You're not, gonna, you're not only going to do them, but you're going to approve them. And it's in light of the fact that you all know, you all know that it's not right. And you know that God knows it's not right. He says, you know that God disapproves these things. In other words, don't we, I mean, we talked about this last week. Let me just repeat it for your sake. We have a conscience. You see it in our young children, right? I gave the example of when the young child grabs the sibling's toy, they'll often turn their head. They know they're doing the wrong thing. You know it. When you tell a story, when you are caught perhaps in something, there's that shame you feel. Why do we feel shame? It isn't just 
a social construct. Children feel shame at a very young age before society has time to engineer them. There's that conscience that we have that I know exactly when I'm stepping off the road to tell a story that brings better light to me than I deserve. Or I know exactly when I'm giving 98%, but that 2% is really critical. But I'm, I'm telling most of the truth. We know that. And what Paul's saying here is that's the bottom, that's the final dimension of what it means to walk away from God, that we begin to do these things, we practice them, and we actually begin to applaud those who do. And he says the final result is death. Now, when we think of death as Christians, we don't think of death as simply the cessation of biological function. We don't think that way. What we think of death is we think it is that, but it's a result of our walking away from God. Don't we see that in Genesis 2? They had the tree of life. They would live forever in the garden. They walk away from God. They're out of the garden. They're sinning against God. And what's the first thing that happens in Genesis 4? You have family conflict. You have murder. And then Genesis 5, read Genesis 5. It's a real yucker. You read, read through, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Just goes right on through. Everybody that had been born, they're all dead. And they're not all dead because they didn't eat right or they didn't exercise or they, they worked at a hazardous job. They died because that's the foretaste of a judgment that God will give. Every time we go to a funeral, you can remind yourself, God's judgment's being revealed right now. Right now. It isn't just that he didn't make it through cancer. God's just telling us, this is the result of you walking away from me. So you can see why I struggle with preaching a text like this. It's a hard text to preach well because of its heaviness on us. What hope do we have? Well, we have a great hope. And this is for Christian here and for those who are looking at Christianity and you're truly interested in trying to figure out the more transcendent questions of life. Why am I here? Why do I exist? What should I be doing? This gives us hope. This, and this, remember the context of this whole thing? So Paul began this whole section with, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save all who believe. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. The stuff that brought us here, a righteousness is now revealed in Christ that is ours by faith. And so we have to look to Christ to be delivered from this wrath. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, if you don't believe the Bible, then it probably seems like kind of screwy stuff to you. But at least the way the Bible explains it, and you see it, you've been with me in Romans, Paul explains the power of the gospel, and then we go right into what? The brokenness of men and women. But the hope we have is to look to Christ, that Christ himself delivers us from this wrath. We read this passage last week. I want to read it again to you. It is simply this, Paul writes in chapter 5, he says, But God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So it's looking to Christ alone. 
for the deliverance of our ungodliness to be made right. Now, as we're going to press on in the book of Romans, we're going to find that not only are we delivered from wrath, but we've been given a new nature. And now this, what I'm speaking about here, the depraved mind, we're being renewed in our minds, he says. In chapter 12, our minds are being renewed to know what the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. That the sin and the stain of our sexual impurity, we've now been forgiven. We've been justified by the blood of Christ. So the hope for the Christian is that we're being delivered out of this and we're being renewed even now in a society that has yet to see this, continues its downward degeneration. We are to be lights, gracious lights, not condemning lights. God will do the condemning that has to be done. The church is never called to judge the world. Do you realize that? The church is to judge the church. The church... God will judge the world. That's not our job. Our job is to now be saved from the wrath of God through faith, be cleansed, and begin to display the glory of God as we've been changed. So for the Christian here, this is, this is good hope. This is why the gospel is good news. It's really good when you think, I've been under the wrath of God as revealed by sexual impurity, debased minds, and everybody I know dies. You know, so, so we see the wrath of God revealed to us, but now we've been delivered out of that through faith in Christ. So your affections for Christ begins to just go up. He has saved me from that which I could not have saved myself from. And he has much, much praise we ought to give him. For those who struggle with this, and if, uh, if it's raised more questions than I've answered, I would be more than willing to set up time and speak with you about any of these issues. I know the staff or the elders would as well. Uh, these are challenging issues. I don't say these words casually or lightly. I hope you, you feel the weightiness in my voice and the way I've tried to work through this text. Um, I realize this is, a big, this is a big thing for a lot of people. All of us are touched by these issues. So remember, God's wrath is explained in a giving over. I hope you see the lining of grace in that. And then the manifestation of that anger, how that anger is revealed, is through these different ways. There's a, 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 there's a physical dimension of depravity. There's, a mental, uh, there's a, a mental dimension of depravity. And then there's that ultimate final dimension. So, so join with me now just for a few moments and and let's ask God for grace to understand this, to walk in light of it, to grow in our affections for Christ, and then I will, I'll close this in prayer in just a minute.